This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hey, this is Dylan Matthews. I write for Vox about everything from anti-poverty efforts to animal welfare to the best ways to do philanthropy. And this week, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. I've been a political nerd all my life, and like most political nerds, I like to talk about my favorite presidents. But I actually prefer talking about my favorite members of Congress. You don't learn these folks' names in school usually, but they built the America we live in today. Many of them had big dreams that would have made America better than it is. At the absolute top of my list is a guy named Thaddeus Stevens. He's not quite a household name. You might have seen Tommy Lee Jones play him in Steven Spielberg's movie Lincoln, He was also the basis for the villain in D.W. Griffith's infamous movie, Birth of a Nation. But he was more effective and more fascinating than his pop culture representations make him seem. Stevens ran the House Committee in charge of funding the Civil War and played a key role in beating the Confederacy. But he didn't stop there. He was an absolute believer in the equality of black and white Americans in a way that was incredibly rare for a white man of his generation. Not only was he a leader in passing the 13th Amendment to abolish slavery— He also fought for universal education, for the right to vote for Black Americans, and he even wanted to seize cotton plantations from former slave owners and give them to freed slaves. My biggest question about Thaddeus Stevens is this. How did someone with ideals so far outside the mainstream manage to be effective? And how did he even develop those ideals in the first place? Bruce Levine, a professor emeritus of history at the University of Illinois, has a new book out telling Stevens' amazing story. It's called Thaddeus Stevens, Civil War Revolutionary, Fighter for Racial Justice. And it's the first biography of Stevens in a quarter century. I couldn't wait to have him on the show to tell us about Thaddeus Stevens' life and legacy. Bruce, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Dylan. It's a pleasure. So I wanted to start with that big question first. Thaddeus Stevens had really big ideals, was a big believer in in equality between the races. You mentioned that he supported women's suffrage, had a really big vision for economic equality. But he also got really involved in practical politics, trying to fight for those ideals. And I'm curious what lessons you take away from his life for people at his time and now who want to make major changes, but know that the world might have not caught up to where they're at politically. Well, sure. Um, I think one of the really key factors here, which almost no other Stevens biographer has paid much attention to, is the fact that he was born and raised in Vermont. And Vermont was the most radically democratic state in the early United States. It was a state born in a struggle to defend the property rights of small farmers against the attempt of large landowners and speculators in New York to seize them. And it's a state that struggles successfully to create for itself a particularly democratic form of state constitution and self-government. So it's a state very attached to the rights of the uh, small property owners and the rights of self-government on the part of a large electorate. It's also the first state whose constitution explicitly condemns human slavery. And in that regard, it places itself beyond not only every other state in the Union, but also the British Empire in that era. 
So that's a key factor. He was born and raised in that political atmosphere. And he was born into a family that cherished the most democratic aspects of the American Revolution, as embodied in its most democratic document, the Declaration of Independence. He was also born into a relatively poor farm family, which, as he says later in life, helped him to identify with other poor and downtrodden individuals and families. He's finally also born into a family whose faith is the Baptist faith, a faith that traces its lineage back to the 17th century revolution in England itself that overthrew, for a time, the English monarchy, a faith that prized individual conscience, individual choice, and the value of community cohesion. And I think all these things come together to influence Stephen's democratic views. And those are then further reinforced when his formal education begins, because that education includes the reading of ancient pro-Republican small-r classics from Greece and Rome. And when he gets to college, he's assigned a series of books that reflect the impact of the European Enlightenment and its emphasis on human reason. And that, in many ways, once again reinforces those values. But what's also going on at the same time is a strong identification with what people in those days generally called free labor society, and which we would call capitalism in its early stages. And fundamental to the belief in that kind of society in those days was the belief in the right of self-ownership, the right of an individual at the very least to own his or her own body, more emphatically his than hers, rather than to be owned by someone else. So here's another important factor, because by the standards of that early pro-capitalist ideology, Slavery is also anathema. So there's are multiple influences pushing Stevens in the direction of the ideas that would mature as he grew older. So I think if someone was running for office in 2020 or 2021 on a pro-capitalism, pro-free labor platform, I would not immediately interpret that as a progressive platform. But the context was obviously very different when he was working on this. Exactly right. That's a key distinction. So yeah, tell me about that distinction. What was free labor ideology sort of opposed to? What were the alternatives? And why was this an egalitarian creed at that time? Well, at this point, what we call capitalism, and again, what they call free labor economy, is at a very early stage of development. And the average manufacturing enterprise is quite small at that point. Uh, you have an employer who frequently works himself, and it's usually a male, and the same enterprise where he employs just a handful of other people. So it's a face-to-face -face relationship. The difference in wealth between that employer and those he hires is not nearly as great, to put it mildly, as it is today. It's a form of economy, at least at that early stage, where upward mobility is much, much more possible then it will become, and certainly drastically, more possible than it is today. And by contrast with the other major forms of economic relationship in the world and in the United States, it still seems the most calculated to breed individual freedom, since what else are the alternatives? Serfdom in Europe, slavery in the Americas, indentured servitude, which still lives on to a certain degree in parts of uh, the United States, although it is on the way out. And so this looks like and has for a few hundred years the coming bearer of freedom and the accompaniment of democratic rights. And an interesting part of his sort of efforts to figure out a way to fight for economic equality and against privilege at this time, you write about him being a member of the anti-Masonic Party sort of early in his career. And 
I mean, today I think of the Masons as just like a social club. And so it's it's harder for me to kind of understand the context where you would have a whole political party <laughs> devoted to resisting the influence of the Masons. But but this was a real force in the 1830s. So I was wondering if you could tell me a bit about that and, and sort of why that was appealing to someone with, with Stevens's beliefs. Sure. And I, I've got to say that a lot of historians who have written about this era without necessarily studying this particular subject very closely, share the view that this is a pretty strange outfit to exist, much less for someone like Stevens to join. And to be even more candid, I'll add that I also thought this was pretty strange. It looked like a crank outfit to me until I looked more closely at it. And what I discovered by studying uh, both the Masons and the anti-Masons uh, more closely is that the Masons was a different kind of organization in those days. It was made up largely, although it probably still is, of relatively well-to-do individuals. But those individuals constituted a secret society whose members formally pledged themselves to favor one another over all non-members, both in economic doings, as well as in political conduct, which is to say that it really constituted uh, what its critics said it constituted, which was a kind of secret cabal to advance its own members at the expense of others. And to people who were sensitive about dangers to a newborn, increasingly democratic republic, this looked very threatening, like the kind of thing that could undermine precisely the Republic. And when they look back into history and watch the ways Republics had collapsed or devolved at earlier stages of history, stretching back thousands of years, they thought they saw in the Masons a version of the kind of force that could kill democracy, a Republican government in the United States as well. And so people like Stevens, who were anxious to preserve democracy and Baptists, who, again, like his family members, uh, were very conscious of having been discriminated against in the old world as well as in the new, feared this kind of secret, oath-based, uh, mutual support kind of organization and feared that this kind of secret conduct could lead to their being discriminated against. They believe very strongly in abolition of secrecy in all aspects of politics. And so again, his family background pushes him in the direction of the anti-Masonic movement. And that movement gets very successful. It flourishes. And it becomes so effective that it in fact drives the Masons back onto their heels and shrinks their membership and reduces their clout so that the threat that they seem to pose eventually dwindles, which in turn eventually kills the anti-Masonic party, who had after all come into being only because the Masons seemed still to constitute a threat. And so a lot of this book is about Stevens kind of feeling politically homeless, that he, he finds a home in the anti-Masonic party, and then it becomes a victim of its own success in opposing the Masons. Um, he becomes a Whig by the time he's running for Congress. And the 1850s, when he's in Congress and has one stint and gets elected later, slavery starts to become, if it hadn't been already, the dominant issue in national politics right. and starts to take on sort of more violent character in, in Kansas and then culminating in John Brown's uprising. How does Stevens react to this? How does he adapt to his anti-slavery beliefs becoming much more important in national politics? And how does he react to the idea of violence being used in service of fighting slavery? Well, that's an excellent question. And I think the answer leads us all the way back into the middle of the 1830s when the slavery issue starts to heat up again for the first time in a big way since the conflict in 1820 over the admission of Missouri as a slave state. In the middle of the 1830s, all sorts of things are happening. We have a major slave rebellion at the beginning of the decade. We have the formation of what are now called the abolitionist societies, the American Anti-Slavery Society, which begins 
to escalate the level of anti-slavery education and agitation. Uh, we have slave owners responding with fury and fear, both to the slave rebellion and to the rise of abolitionism, and therefore the slave owners in response beginning to demand more power for themselves and more insurance, politically speaking, for slavery. And it finally leads to the nullification conflict in the early 1830s when South Carolina demands the right to nullify all federal laws within its own state if it so chooses for fear that eventually the federal government may pass a law directly infringing upon slavery. So that begins in the 1830s. Stevens gets his back up on the slavery question in the middle of the 1830s. And from then onward, we see him placing more and more emphasis on the struggle against slavery as he watches the slave owners become more and more aggressive in pressing their case and making demands not only on the federal government, but on the northern states to stamp out all expressions of anti-slavery opinion in clear violation to the Constitution and the rights it grants of free assembly and free speech and free petition. By the middle of the 1850s, this has really culminated in something called the Kansas-Nebraska Act, when the South compels the Democratic Party, which is attempting to form territories in what's left of the Louisiana Purchase, compels the Democrats to repeal the Compromise of 1820, which had excluded slavery from a great swath of the territory concerned. And the North boils over in outrage at the Kansas-Nebraska Act, both because it threatens to expand slavery, whereas Northerners had hoped slavery was already on the road to disintegration, but perhaps more importantly, it demonstrates to the satisfaction of large numbers of Northerners for the first time that no compromise with slavery will endure if the slave owners see it in their interest to break that compromise. And so Northerners who had disliked slavery for decades now are also coming to the conclusion that if they do not specifically organize on the basis of breaking the back of slavery's expansion and quashing the power of slaveholders over the federal government, slavery may expand indefinitely. And this sentiment is what eventually gives rise within a year or two of the Republican Party, which begins its life as a radical anti-slavery party. And on the subject of violence, Stevens is no champion of violence. He's no enthusiast for violence, and he would like to see violence avoided wherever it can be. But he's also not somebody who is going to say violence on all occasions is unacceptable. As he demonstrates very clearly during the war, Stevens believes that you first need to understand the circumstance in which you find yourself, find out what kind of enemy you may be opposing, and if overcoming that enemy requires violence, and if overcoming that enemy is worthwhile enough, then violence is perfectly justified. You write a bit about some of his in-person activism against slavery growing from the 1840s into the 1850s. He was involved with the Underground Railroad and, and attempts to help slaves flee to Canada. There's one case in particular, uh, the Gorsuch case, that he gets involved in as a lawyer. Um, I was wondering if you could tell that story, since it's, it's such an interesting case of his principles being put in action outside of Congress. Yeah. And so this is the beginning of the 1850s. Stevens has just fought vigorously against another compromise, the Compromise of 1850, because he opposed one of the laws that this compromise included, called the Fugitive Slave Law, which increased the power of slave owners to recapture individuals whom they claim are slaves, but who have managed to escape into free states. 
And Stevens opposes that law. He also opposes other aspects of the compromises, therefore votes against the compromise, continues to struggle against the compromise, pretty soon puts him on the fringes of the Whig party and loses him his seat in the Congress. Meanwhile, two slaves owned by a slave owner named Gorsuch in Maryland have managed to escape from Gorsuch's property and made their way into Lancaster County, where Stevens lives now. And when Gorsuch finds out where they are, he puts together a group or posse or gang, choose the term that you prefer, rounds up a federal marshal who is sworn to aid them by virtue of the fugitive slave law in catching those fugitives, and they make their way into Lancaster County in order to recapture these young men. What they don't know is that the free Black population of this area has already formed a self-defense network, and they are keeping track of things like this, so that by the time Gorsuch and his marshal and his relatives and his friends arrive heavily armed at the home of one of the heads of this Black network where these fugitives have taken refuge, all these free Blacks know exactly what's going on. And Gorsuch and his allies go to the front door of this home, rap on it, and when the door opens, they insist that the fugitives be given up. Before very long, the two sides exchange gunfire. Gorsuch is killed. His son, if I remember correctly, is seriously but not mortally wounded. The party of uh, slave catchers is repelled, and the fugitives manage to escape and make their way into Canada. This becomes a very huge issue, politically speaking, and the Upper South is in an uproar now on its side over what has happened. And uh, with the backing of the federal government, the individuals in the House and a number of the neighbors, black and white, who show up but refuse to aid the marshal in recapturing the fugitive are brought to trial on a series of charges that include treason by virtue of their assertedly breaking this law. Well, Thaddeus Stevens becomes an important part of the defense team. And the defense is successful. The judge, who is a pro-slavery individual from the Supreme Court, who's been brought in to preside over this case, has to confess in charging the jury that treason is a serious overreach, takes the jury a handful of minutes to reach a verdict of not guilty. So that's the case. And that is yet another indication to slave owners that they cannot depend upon the North to enforce slavery. So eventually that, of course, leads to the crisis of 1860, the secession crisis, the outbreak of war. Stevens is in back in Congress at this point. He's a Republican at this point. What's his role in fighting the war? What does he do as a funder and how does he help shape the point of the war, whether that's keeping the union together or sort of a broader social project? Well, as you say, he has at least two functions here. He's the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee in the House of Representatives. That's a key role, both in formulating and bringing to the floor a whole series of laws necessary to fund and equip the union's military forces. But he's also a key floor leader of the Republican Party. And in that capacity, he fights to change the policy of his party. So he's, in this political sense, riding two horses at the same time. He's both a leader of the party as a whole in Congress, and he's a leader of what is forming within that party as a particularly radical wing and a spokesperson for that wing. And so he struggles to make the party adopt a way of fighting this war that is more explicitly, emphatically, and consistently anti-slavery than the party 
adopts at the beginning of that war and that Lincoln adopts at the beginning of the war. And to understand this, it's, I think, also important to understand how Lincoln and the majority of his party really see the war and how to win it in 1861. They're under the illusion that the majority of whites in the South, including the majority of slave owners, are really basically loyal to the Union, and that they've simply been outmaneuvered by a small number of pro-slavery extremists into seceding from the Union. And so goes this reasoning. If we can fight secession, but do so without ruffling Southern feathers any more than we absolutely must, we may see this basically loyal Southern white majority reassert control over the states of the Confederacy and bring them back into the Union in short order. As a result of that, Abraham Lincoln concludes that it's necessary to interfere with slavery in the states of the Confederacy only as much as is absolutely necessary to carry on the war effort. Thaddeus Stevens, in agreement with people like Frederick Douglass, think this is completely misfocused and wrongheaded, that the only way to defeat the Confederacy is to uproot slavery in the Confederacy, because the Confederacy draws strength from slavery. Slavery feeds the members of the Confederate armed forces. Slavery feeds the rest of the civilian population while many of its men are away fighting against the Union. Slaves are used in a variety of non-combat roles within the Confederate Army to bolster that army. And the only way to defeat this army is to take that force away from them. Moreover, Stevens does not believe that the majority of Southern whites, and especially the majority of slave owners, are basically loyal. He correctly sees that the overwhelming majority of them support the Confederacy and support slavery. And so there is no point trying to conciliate them. They're not coming back into the Union short of being compelled to do so. And so Stevens wants the Union to begin uprooting slavery immediately. Let's take a quick break, but when we're back, for Lincoln and the Republican Party, Thaddeus Stevens's take on how to win the war and about what to do about slavery in the southern states, at first it seemed nothing short of radical. So how did his argument in the end win? How did ideas that at first seemed crazy and extreme become the best solution? We'll find out after the break. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box.
part of what's interesting is, as you say, that the narrative in the book is kind of of an ongoing argument between Abraham Lincoln and, and Thaddeus Stevens, with Abraham Lincoln having this theory of the war based on white moderates and Thaddeus Stevens having a theory of the war based on unleashing sort of the power and, and skill of newly freed slaves in the South, and that Stevens sort of slowly wins that argument. How does he win it? Why does the case for the Civil War as sort of a revolution in the South and an alliance with freed slaves, why does that win the day? Well, I think you put your finger on the key question, not only of the book, but more importantly, of the era. And more broadly, of the question I think you raised earlier, how does someone or some group with ideas that seem initially far-fetched and far too extreme come to win over a larger number of supporters? And I think there's two ingredients here. One is what Frederick Douglass calls the inexorable logic of events, the irresistible logic of the situation. As I was trying to indicate a moment ago, the union finds itself needing to do what the radicals are calling for. As he says to them, many of the Republicans falsely believe this is going to be a short war in 1861, not only because they think that the alleged moderates are going to retake control of the southern states, but they have far too much confidence in the military capacity of their own forces and far too little respect for the military capacity of the southern states. And Stevens says to them, your generals are no better than their generals. Your soldiers are no better than their soldiers. And your commitment to this war is probably not even as strong as their commitment to this war effort. So you need to step up the radicalism of your program. You need to do more than you think you need to do. And as the war goes on, the inexorable logic of the situation makes that clear because the Union isn't quickly winning this war, particularly in the eastern theater of war between the Atlantic and the Appalachian mountain chain where most public attention is focused, the Union is having a hell of a hard time against the Confederate forces there. But the inexorable logic of events does not necessarily, or by itself, spontaneously translate to an understanding of that logic of events on the part of people in power. There are all sorts of Northerners who are committed to the struggle against secession who do not recognize this inexorable logic of events, including, most notably, people like George McClellan, who was at one point the head of the Union's armed forces. And initially, neither does the Republican Party majority. So not only do you need the circumstances on your side, you need to know how to articulate the inexorable logic of events in a way that your audience can understand it. You need to translate that into language. In other words, you need to know how to lead. And Stevens does. He does that by knowing that what's important is to change public opinion. If the Republican Party is going, in turn, to change its point of view. And so Stevens gives speeches both in Congress and out of Congress, and those speeches are reprinted in newspapers across the Union. And a significant number of those speeches are then reprinted as pamphlets, which in some cases circulate in the hundreds of thousands of copies. And all the evidence indicates that that kind of appeal to public opinion, that use of what we will eventually call the bully pulpit, is potent. He's a great speaker, and I love whenever in the book you're quoting his speeches because he has this sort of acid sarcasm and has great repartee with his enemies on the House floor. What were his other sort of skills in bringing his colleagues along with him? Well, one thing is he, he becomes a skilled parliamentarian, which is not very sexy, but turns out to be pretty important. He knows the rules of the House, and he knows how to use the rules of the House. And so at that simple level... He outmaneuvers opponents who are in turn trying to outmaneuver him. But more important, he knows how, as you say, to speak to his colleagues, not only to the general public. He knows how to state his position 
clearly. He knows how to say it consistently. And he knows on what occasions to accept a compromise when that's necessary, and on what occasions to refuse compromise when he considers it unacceptable. And furthermore, when it's a compromise that he decides he does need to accept, as, for example, when he's fighting for the 14th Amendment, he knows the particular way to accept a compromise, to settle for less than he thinks is proper, without in the process misleading or confusing his supporters. He doesn't give away the farm. He doesn't pretend that the compromise is better than it is. He makes it clear to his audience that this is not an adequate solution. And that, in turn, allows those who agree with him to prepare to fight for something fuller, more complete, something better, when the time is right. So we'll get to the 14th Amendment, but I wanted to ask you about the 13th first. So the 13th Amendment abolishes slavery, and Stevens has been working for that for his whole career, and and even after the Emancipation Proclamation, is very interested in having a formal ban. Um, This is also the part of his story that some of our listeners might have heard the most of through Steven Spielberg and Tony Kushner, that they make a a big deal of this fight in, in the movie Lincoln. Tell us the story of Stevens's role in that amendment, and what's your review as a historian watching that movie of how much they got it right or wrong? Uh, Stevens calls for an abolitionist amendment a full year before Abraham Lincoln signs on to that project. And Stevens does so because he understands that the Emancipation Proclamation on its own does not, of course, really do the whole job. Emancipation is not enough. Emancipation simply means the liberation of those now enslaved. That does not prevent someone from re-enslaving those individuals. And the concern is that after the war, if Southern states are permitted back into the Union and become self-governing again, they can simply reimpose slavery on emancipated individuals. Stevens sees it's necessary, and he's not alone in this, in making enslavement illegal and doing so in the Constitution, not in a law which can be declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, and in a law that people like Abraham Lincoln thinks is or would be unconstitutional because would supposedly go beyond the appropriate power of the federal government, embedded in the Constitution, says Stevens, and therefore place abolition beyond the reach of the Supreme Court or recalcitrant Southern legislatures or pro-slavery presidents of the future. Eventually, Lincoln agrees to that. About a year later, Lincoln endorses what becomes the 13th Amendment to the Constitution and gives it important support. As for the film, Well, there are all sorts of things that I like about the film. I like Tommy Lee Jones in general. I'm a big fan of his, I have to admit. Although I think it's strange to watch a member of the House of Representatives who's born in Vermont, lives in Pennsylvania, but talks with a Texas accent. (laughs) Aside from that, Jones's performance is just lovely. But the film as a whole gives a false understanding of, I think, the very issue of how the 13th Amendment comes into existence. You never know from the film that Stevens called for this amendment long before Lincoln agrees to it. And once Lincoln is supporting it, Stevens is depicted as a sort of wild-eyed, too radical individual who doesn't understand real politic, that politics is the art of the possible, that you need to tone down your program if you want to get anything done. I thought I'd suggest you might Temper your contribution so as not to frighten our conservative friends. Ashley insists you're ensuring approval by dispensing patronage to otherwise undeserving Democrats. And since Stevens doesn't really want to do that and is finally convinced to do that only after great pressure is applied, he looks to a viewer of the film as though he's as much of a problem for abolition as he is a supporter. And I think that gets 
the whole real story upside down. If I'd listened to you, I'd have declared every slave free the minute the first shell struck Fort Sumter. Then the border states would have gone over to the Confederacy, the war would have been lost, and the Union along with it. And instead of abolishing slavery, as we hope to do in two weeks, we'd be watching helpless as infants as it spread from the American South into South America. Oh, how you have longed to say that to me. And then it depicts him seeming to make concessions on the floor of the House when an opponent, and this is an actual scene from history. How can I hold that all men are created equal when here before me stands stinking the moral carcass of the gentleman from Ohio, proof that some men are inferior? An opponent in the House, a Democrat, demands that he give up his idea of racial equality. And Stevens says, I'm not talking about equality in all things. I'm talking about equality before the law. Even worthless, unworthy you ought to be treated equally before the law. And so again, sir, and again, and again, and again, I say, I do not hold with equality in all things, only with equality before the law. And then the Democrat says, well, then I call for you to give up your call for equality before the law. And Stephen says, I won't do that. And the film implies that equality before the law is not a very radical demand. And in taking his stand on that, he is giving in to Lincoln's pressure. Well, equality before the law means equal rights in the law. It means laws may not discriminate between white and black. And it means that you cannot make stiffer punishments for black people than for whites for violating a given law. And the courts may not discriminate, nor may any aspect of the government legally discriminate. That's a lot more than abolition. That's legal equality. That's not a small thing that Stevens refuses to retreat from. So the 13th Amendment is passed. Robert E. Lee has surrendered at Appomattox. The war is over. Lincoln is assassinated. What is Stevens's vision for how to remake the South and respond to sort of the wreckage of the last four years and the collapse of this social order he's been fighting against his whole life? So what, what is his vision and, and how close or far ahead of the rest of Congress is he? Getting? Well, Stevens continues to march ahead of Congress in general and even the Republican Party as a whole. Stevens believes that in order to consolidate the gains of the war, and especially the destruction of slavery, it is necessary again to go further. He wants to disfranchise the Confederate leadership, bar them from political life. He wants to keep the states of the former Confederacy out of Congress and deny them full self-government for fear that If they are given full self-government and allowed once again to send their representatives to Congress, they will elect former leaders of the Confederacy or other supporters of the Confederacy, and that then, in alliance nationally with the Northern Democrats, will resume the same control that they had of Congress prior to the war, and then conceivably turn back the clock on everything that the Union has won. Stephen's solution is to say to the states of the Confederacy, you have declared yourselves out of the Union. Fine, you are out of the Union. You have thereby lost the protections accorded to states in the Union. You individuals have lost the rights of citizens in the Union. We may do with you as we wish, because what you have become is enemy foreign nation. And so he wants to keep them as federal territories and govern them directly from Washington until such time as the federal government can be satisfied that if given self-government and the right of representation in Congress, that those states will do so in a way that still accepts the emancipation of African-Americans and treats African-Americans and those whites who had always in the South remained loyal to the Union equally and fairly. The Republican Party 
as a whole rejects that idea. They do not want to accept the idea that the southern states have ever successfully left the Union, and so they now believe that it cannot be treated as a foreign power. What they want to do is something less than that, but something more than restoring these states immediately to their previous status. Stevens also, meanwhile, once he cannot get his colleagues to accept the idea of keeping these states as federal territories, he embraces the idea of sending the army into the states of the South with the explicit requirement that the army use its power to protect the rights of all citizens in the South and overrule locally elected officials who are seeking to reimpose legal inequality or even some form of bondage upon African Americans. And that is the cornerstone of the Reconstruction Acts that eventually do place the Southern states under ultimate military control. Okay, we're going to take one more short break, but when we come back... Looking back on the life of Thaddeus Stevens, he seems like a pretty great guy. Someone who was fighting for freedom and the integrity of his country. But actually, until relatively recently, the story about Thaddeus Stevens was that he wasn't someone who deserved to have statues and his likeness erected and elementary schools named after him. He was the bad guy. That's after the break. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at WorkingForestsInitiative.com. So for many years, the dominant historical narrative about Thaddeus Stevens, largely created by historians sympathetic to the South, was that he was a tyrant, that he wanted to have dictatorial power over the South and punish white Southerners, usurped power from the president in order to punish the South. This is about 180 degrees away from how how you see him. Where did that view come from? And what, just of the many things wrong with it, is most uh, warped about that story? Well, let's start with what's wrong with it. What's wrong with it is that it completely misses the problem that Republicans and African-Americans and opponents of slavery face after the war. They're confronting a South, Southern states that are overwhelmingly white, dominated by the ideology still of white supremacy. Former slave owners who have given up slavery only because they were physically forced to do so, not because they saw the light somehow. And an overwhelming majority of that white population quite obviously determined to reimpose as much control over the black population as they possibly could. 
and to do that by any means necessary. This is the era when the Ku Klux Klan forms, as well as a host of other organizations with different names, but identical aims and identical methods. Terrorism that set out to kill the leaders of the African-American population, those who are most educated, those who are most courageous, those who are most effective in struggling for the rights of their fellow African-Americans, to kill them and to intimidate the rest of the black population into a new form of subservience. And meanwhile, under Andrew Johnson's aegis, state legislatures in the South elected in 1865 and 1866, are passing one law after another, denying to the emancipated slaves many of the key rights that are routinely accorded to white people. The right to live where they want, to choose the occupation they want, to speak freely, the right to own land, the right to own guns, with which to protect themselves against violence, even control over their own families. And so it doesn't take much convincing to lay out once again the inexorable logic of the situation. We have no choice, Stephen said, if we want to hold on to what we have won, but to fight for more. And eventually that includes the right of African-Americans in the South to vote, and the right of African-Americans in the South to hold office, and to exclude from office the most powerful individuals who had most recently led the traitorous rebellion against the country. So what Stevens and his allies are doing represents nothing except what I think was necessary in order to preserve the fruits of victory that the Union had won at such enormous cost. Where the idea that this represents tyranny, something hideous, arises, is from a combination of sources. First of all, ex-Confederates, who are saying precisely this, of course, among other things that they're saying about the war and about the Reconstruction process. But just as importantly, from the fact that the economic leadership and the political leadership of the North begins to move to the right, certainly by the late 1870s. They have done away with slavery. They have maintained control of the federal government. And to many of these people, that's enough. And they're sick and tired of having to conduct this struggle with the South. They're worn out. And they no longer consider, in the language of the old days, the game is worth the candle. And they basically turn their backs in the subsequent decades on the African-American population of the South and leave them to the tender mercy of a basically retroactively, retrospectively pro-Confederate Southern political leadership, which does indeed proceed to impose uh, what comes to be known as Jim Crow on the South, not reimposing slavery, but depriving African Americans of most of the rights that white people routinely enjoyed. Northerners basically allow them to do this, and as they themselves become more conservative, they look back upon the Union's radicalism in the time of war and Reconstruction with some genuine horror. We did this? Why did we do this? Surely this was over the top. Surely this was too extreme. As the Northern leadership becomes more and more averse to extremism, so-called, they become less interested in and less willing to honor the efforts that were necessary to overcome their adversary, the slave owners. And the path that the political leadership blazes is quickly followed by the academics, and by the makers of popular culture. And so universities begin churning out books that depict uh, Stevens and radical Republicans generally and Reconstruction as a whole as something evil, something villainous, something dictatorial, and something sadistic even. And as 
I'm sure you know, one of the first films that comes out of Hollywood is The Birth of a Nation, which is explicitly pro-Ku Klux Klan and depicts Thaddeus Stevens only thinly disguised as precisely this kind of villain. And this remains the dominant cultural take, not just in the South, but throughout the country, down through the middle of the 1950s. So a book that in my youth was always held up as a piece of brilliant scholarship, John F. Kennedy's book, Profiles in Courage, echoes this entire line of thought. Andrew Johnson was really a hero, not a villain. Thaddeus Stevens was really a despicable villain, not a hero. And that's what John Kennedy had learned when a student in Harvard. It takes the civil rights movement and reminding the white population, at least of the North, of what the South was really like and what African Americans still confronted to make academics, politicians, and culture producers begin to rethink their biases on this subject. So the big dream of Thaddeus Stevens during Reconstruction is this land reform project, that you have these ex-slave plantations. Eventually, they'll turn out to be sort of sharecropping operations with a a similar, if somewhat less bad, uh, system of control uh, than existed during slavery. But Stevens wanted to redistribute them to freed slaves so they could be sort of yeoman farmers. And that obviously didn't happen. I'm curious why it didn't happen politically and also sort of how big a difference you think it would have made if it had happened. If the union was not going to make good on its promise of protecting the African-Americans in not only their emancipation, but their legal equality and their voting rights, then nothing else was going to survive. If they were going to be removed from effective control over their lives, not to mention over Southern governments, then nothing else was going to save them. So the decision by the North to turn its back on Reconstruction doomed everything else that could have made a difference in the South, including land reform. Now, to the question of why Stevens couldn't even get that land reform proposal endorsed. That's another question entirely, because, of course, it is turned down, rejected by his own party, long before that party turns its back on Reconstruction as a whole. Stevens makes this proposal in 1866-1867 when possibilities of change are still very much alive. And once again, he makes the argument based on Frederick Douglass's inexorable logic of events. If we want these emancipated slaves, these ex-slaves, to live decent lives, not be compelled to work for others, especially those for whom they had and their ancestors had already worked in return for basically nothing but survival, if we want to spare them that, then we need to give them another means with which to physically survive. And in an agricultural South, that's land. We need to give them land. And if we want to weaken, as we must, the old elite of the South, in order to transform the South into a truly Republican kind of society, again, Republican, small r, then we need to take that land away from the old, big slave owners and then divide it up into small farms among the former slaves. Furthermore, if we are going to restore to these states the right of self-government, then we better be able to count on the political support of an enfranchised Black population in the South. But we cannot count on that kind of support if they need to work for the people who yesterday were the slave owners. Those slave owners, by virtue of their economic power over the freed people, may compel the freed people to vote as the former slave owners wish. And so we need to do more. We need not only to enfranchise the Black population, we need to give them enough economic independence so that they will not fall victim to economic blackmail by their employers. The Republican Party 
overwhelmingly and almost rudely rejects the idea. Almost as soon as Stevens puts it forward, they vote it down. So why? Why, after having successfully shown his party time after time that the seemingly extreme things he advocates are necessary, critical to their own self-interest, why can he not do it this time? And the answer, it seems clear to me, is that this is a party that speaks for Northern business interests above all. And they hate the idea of confiscating private property, especially in times of peace. Furthermore, they are afraid that confiscating and redistributing property and redistributing it to people who have been oppressed and exploited for the sake of raising up their living standards is a dangerous precedent to set because there's poor people in the North as well. And there are, in the language of one newspaper, socialists who despise any kind of aristocracy, including our own economic elite. And so if you start taking property away from the rich and giving it to the poor in the South, you're going to encourage the same kind of idea in the North, and that we cannot tolerate. I'm curious, reading this today, I so often think of the failure to pass that land reform as this huge missed opportunity. How does it affect how you think about debates about reparations today? Is there any way to approximate what could have been done then today? Or is it just one of those tragedies of history, a very good idea didn't get a hearing? Well, in my opinion, one of the many tasks before us today is to do everything possible to overcome the legacy of slavery and a century of Jim Crow. And that requires whatever kind of measures will assist in the process. That includes reparations, and that includes affirmative action. The African-American population, or the great mass of African-Americans today, as I'm sure you and your listeners know, have a far higher level of unemployment a far higher level of untreated illness, much worse housing. Across the board, they still bear the burdens of what was done to them for centuries and still suffer from poverty and discrimination. And so we face and we bear the obligation to do whatever is necessary and make whatever sacrifices are necessary if we want to see ourselves living in a genuinely egalitarian society. And that, as I say, includes, if this is what African Americans want, cash reparations. I think all other things being equal, in the job hunt, jobs should go to the African American applicant. And undoubtedly, there are many other things that are necessary, not least of all, radically transforming the police forces across the United States and re-educating them and changing them from what they are today, which is a force in the Black community of oppression, violence, intimidation, and often enough murder. One sort of closely related question I had as for you as a scholar of Stevens, it's a remarkable book in that it's a book and a story about a man who's devoted much of his life to fighting for, for people outside of his race, that he clearly believed abolishing slavery and and remaking the South was the task of his lifetime and accomplished a great deal. But there's always a worry in stories like that, that you you fall into the trope of the white savior. I'm curious how you think about that in writing this book and and how you make sure to give his African-American colleagues and, and partners in this change their due. Well, I've been writing about this subject for a long time. I mean, the general subject of slavery Civil War, Emancipation, Reconstruction. And, for example, in the last book, which was called The Fall of the House of Dixie, which goes into greater detail about how the Confederacy was defeated and collapsed, I place a great emphasis on the role of the initiative taken by slaves themselves and free blacks in the North, both in politics and in military action. I try to include aspects of that in the book about Stevens. 
and try to make clear at each point that Stevens is not acting alone. And at every stage, I do the best I can to try to make clear that white abolitionists, radical Republicans, moderate Republicans are not fighting on their own, that white soldiers didn't win the war for the Union on their own, that in the post-war era, people like Thaddeus Stevens and other whites was not alone in seeking to transform the South. At every stage, members of the Black population were ahead of the white population in doing these things and championing these changes. Bruce, this was a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for for doing the show. Thank you very much for having me, Dylan. This week's episode of Vox Conversations was produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drostowska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Liz Kelly Nelson is the VP of audio at Vox. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests, guest hosts, or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate and review, and come back next week for a brand new episode. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. 